Father in heaven, we know that you're in control of all things, and you have put on the hearts of each one here somebody or some uh, multiple individuals to study with. Lord, we pray that you would soften and prepare those hearts for your truth. And I pray that you would prepare our hearts and our minds as we are preparing to share that truth with these uh, precious souls that you are leading us to. Lord, we pray that you would be with us now in this class time as we're seeking to better understand how to teach others your truth, how to give effective Bible studies. And Lord, we ask and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Oh, there was something else I wanted to bring up, and I was thinking about it, and I just, it's, the thing is gone from me in the words of Nebuchadnezzar. Okay. So, where were we? When you're giving the study and you're going through the question and answer, um, you know, again, I don't spend a whole lot of time teaching students how to ask a question and read a Bible answer. That's pretty straightforward. But when you're giving a study, it's in the delivery of the study. It's in how you do it. You want to make sure you keep the person engaged. I had a lot of questions during the break. Is it okay if I, you know, alternate between verses with husband and wife? It, what if I have a husband and wife or a couple or somebody that I'm studying with and one answers the questions and the other one doesn't? So the husband's always answering or the wife is always answering. I had a couple, a husband and wife that I studied with, and the wife was the talker. And the husband just sat while the wife did most of the talking and answering. You know, that's okay. If he's there, I'm still going to ask it, his name was Dave, and her name was Sally, and I would ask, you know, sometimes I would just say, Dave, what do you think about that? Okay, so every once in a while, but I didn't make sure it was an even, okay, no, 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 Dave, you know, uh, Sally, Dave had the last one, uh, or you had the last one, it was Dave's turn. I didn't do that. Um, as long as they're both there, and they're both looking up the text, and they're, then they're both getting it, Okay. So I'll try to engage the other person, but it's not unnatural to have one person do more of the talking than another. Because if you had a situation in a, a marriage where both did all the talking, neither could do any talking. I mean, you're usually going to have one. If one is more of a talker, the other one's not going to be. That's, that's not uncommon. You just want to make sure when you're giving the study that you're not just throwing information at them. You want to make sure you're asking the question, you're giving them time to get to the answer. In this case, with a fill in the blank, now I've done it as though I didn't have a fill in the blank, which I've done studies like that before. I ask a question, we're just getting, you know, looking up the Bible text. Somebody asked during the break, you know, if I have a special Bible study, you know, Bible, a Bible I take on Bible studies, you know, maybe I could have things when I'm preparing the study, I could have certain words underlined and things like that. Absolutely. You know, it's like, what am I going to emphasize? Well, you might underline the things you want to emphasize. In my, I started Bible marking this Bible, and I didn't finish it. This is one of my study Bibles. I have another Bible that's all marked up, and, and then you use more Bibles. And So what I did in, in, this is my Daniel 2, and I've got the portions marked that I want to under, you know, underline is where I wanted to read the specific texts and whatever. You can highlight your stuff up. Uh, make whatever notes in your Bible or in your lesson. That's part of the preparation. And so when you're asking me questions like, can I do this? Sure you can. You're the one leading the study. So you can make all the notes you need. You can highlight stuff. You can make notes in the margins on this thing. You can draw pictures for yourself. Knock yourself out, whatever you need to do, just so that it helps you when you give that study to know how you're going to give it. Now, when I go through, let's say I'm going through the lesson. In the lesson, we filled in the blanks ahead of time. I mean, that's the idea. 
And so if we're going through the lesson together, we may not be looking up the text now because we looked up the text earlier. In which case, I can be studying with Julie and I can say question number one, how does God demonstrate that he can be trusted? Now the text here in the lesson is Isaiah 46, 9 and 10. Uh, Julie, why don't you read in what you, ha what you have there and then she'll go ahead and read it. And I'll let her read that and then I'll say, okay, the question is, and I repeat the question. That's the way I typically do it. The question is, how does God demonstrate that he can be trusted? What, what is the answer there? And I'll have them paraphrase it. I don't just want them giving me the blanks. They'll fill in the blanks. Sure, they'll say, well, I have uh, declaring the end from the beginning from ancient times, things that are not yet done. So when she's reading this back to me, she's going to give the blanks, but I'm, I want her to put it in her words. So let's just say, um, how does God demonstrate that he can be trusted? And she might read the verse again. I've had people do that. Okay, so put that in your own words. I'll ask a person, put it in your own words. What is it that, what, that, that tells us that God can be trusted? Well, because God knows the future. That's, it's something along those lines, okay? I'm looking for an answer that is the basic answer. Now, it doesn't have to be specific. If she says, God knows the future, or God tells things before they happen, what God says before he, it happens comes to pass, any one of those works for me. That just tells me they got it. That's all I'm looking for is that they got it. They got the general concept. Okay, good. Question number two. And then I'll go through that one, and I'll work my way through the study. Now, what I want to know in a, in a study context is the key, or key points that I want to come across. And in Daniel 2, this is what I came up with in Daniel 2. You may come up with something different. And I didn't come up with the list, the three points at the end. I came up with five points that I am wanting to be clear in the study. Point number one for me is, and this is not in this, well, it's kind of in this lesson. But I would add something to this lesson. Because this is my first lesson in prophecy, one of the things I will add to this lesson is John 14, 29 and John 13, 19. You can jot that down somewhere. I'd have it right in my lesson. I may not read both, but I may read both. And I want you to look at them with me. John 14, 29. John 14, 29. The, 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 in fact, I usually pose a, another question here. So I would add this in. If I'm giving this lesson, I'd add this question in. Why does God give prophecy? Why does God give prophecy? Let me tell you something else that I might do. Okay? And this is, when I, when I say things like this, I'm, I'm not telling you what you have to do. I'm wanting you to understand that when you give the lesson, you can make the lesson your own. Okay? There's not a rule that says you have to be glued to everything here. So what I might do is scratch out that first question altogether and ask this question instead. Why does God give prophecy? Okay, and, and part of the reason is because that's exactly, that's my study. That's what I, when I do Daniel 2, that's what I do. And I use Isaiah 46, 9, and 10, but the question I ask when I do Isaiah 46, 9, and 10 is why does God give prophecy? And then I use Isaiah 46, 9, and 10, and I also use John 14, 29, and John 13, 19. One or the other, and sometimes both, and you'll see what I mean when we look those up. Let's go to John 14, 29. 
Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, 14, 29. The question is, why does God give prophecy? Gladys, you want to read for us John 14? So you have your Bible there? Oh, you don't have your Bible there. John 14, 29. Who wants to read that for us? Okay, Max, why don't you read John 14, 29? And now I have told you before it comes, that when it comes to pass, you may believe. Okay. So Jesus says, I tell you what? Before it comes. What is that when God tells us before it comes? It's prophecy, right? He's telling us before it comes. He says, I'm telling you this before it comes to pass, so why? Okay, so what's another way of saying that? I'll know what? I'll know what's going to happen. Now let's look at another, well, that you may believe. Look at John 13, 19, and this, this does it the same thing, just a little different. John 13, 19. Who wants to read that for us? Okay. John 13, 19. Now I tell you before it comes that when it is come to pass, ye may believe that I am he. Okay, now. Again, he's saying it before it happens, so that's prophecy. So why? So when it happens, I might believe what? Okay, that he is God. And, and I'll tell you what I would do before this. In the order I do it in is, I ask the question, why does God give prophecy? And then the first thing we look at is, the first text I like to look at is Isaiah 46, 9 and 10. And then my answer is, for Isaiah 46, 9 and 10, why does God give prophecy? Because he can. Nobody else can give prophecy. That's what he's saying. I am God and there is none like me. Why is there none like him? So when I go through that verse with somebody and I say, why does God give prophecy? And I'll ask them, what's the answer? Why does God give prophecy? And they may not know the answer. And I say, well, he says, look, remember the things of old, for I am God and there is what? No other. I am God and there is none like me. Okay, so God's saying this is what makes me different from anybody else. What is it that makes him different? Declaring the, and I'll have them read that, declaring the end from the beginning. So what is it that makes God different from anybody else? He knows the future and he can predict or tell or reveal the future. Okay, so why does God give prophecy? And then they may not get this answer, but I'll say because God can give prophecy, right? Who else can give prophecy according to this verse? Julie? Well, nobody can. He says, I'm God, and this is what may... Okay, so the first thing is, one thing that, makes God, that God says makes him different is he can tell the future. Okay, now let's go to John 13. Now we go to look at John 13, 19, or 14, 29, and Jesus says that you may know that I am he. Well, that, throw, that goes back to Isaiah 46, right? He said, here, I'm the only one who can tell the future. And then Jesus says, I'm telling you this before it happens, so that when it happens, you'll know I can tell the future. Right, Linda? Does this ever lead people into the discussion, well, then are we just predestined? It might. And I would, if a person, let's just say a person asked that. Right now, they're like, well, so if God knows the future, does that mean he, he, he has predestined everything? And I'll say, what do you think I'm going to say to that? That's interesting. <laughs> I'm so glad you asked. We have a study on that coming together. That's exactly right. We've got a study, and when I go into the salvation study, because that's usually where it comes into that context, we'll talk a little bit about predestination. Now, sometimes it may be a person asks you a question, and you really don't know how to answer it. 
this is one of the best things that can ever happen to you. <laughs> I'm going to tell you right now. I was doing a, um, we did our manual session in Pullman. I had a young man that took the class where his sister lived right there, worked at Oak Haven at the time. And so he took the manual session. When he left, he passed his study off to his sister and her husband. And they were studying, and she would call me before the studies, and I would coach a little bit. Okay, this is the study we're giving. Well, this is the thing, these are the points you want to bring out, and what about this and this, and okay. Well, they got so far into the study, and I remember I would check periodically, and I should interject this here. Um, one of the things we want to make sure that you understand, we talked about it already, we're going to cover this in more detail on Thursday. Categorizing your interests, we want to make sure you get a study with somebody who's interested. Uh, I had um, some members in the Goebbels Church who had, it seems like every study they'd always gotten were duds. And what I mean by that is, you've got people that'll study with you because they need company, because they like somebody coming by, but they're not interested. And that can be the most wearying, depressing. You're like, I'm not getting anywhere, I must be doing it wrong. And so I just want you to, well, this couple was kind of that way. They're always canceling on you and everything else. And uh, so it's hit and miss. You study with them one every three times that you're supposed to study. And they're not really making any application. But that's the kind of study that, that this young couple had. So that doesn't help matters. But um, they were asking questions. And this young wife at, tells me at one point, she's like, Pastor, I can't do this anymore. What do you mean you can't do it? I can't do this. I'm not cut out for this. You mean you're not cut out for this? She said, I'm not cut out to give Bibles. I can't, I can't give Bible studies. I said, why are you telling me this now? She said, how do you know you're not cut out? Because they keep asking me questions I don't know the answers to. That was, that was her reasoning. Her name was Mary. I said, Mary, let me ask you a question. How, um, how long have you been an Adventist? My whole life. So you grew up your whole life as an Adventist coming to church on Sabbath, sitting and listening to sermons. I said, when was it you knew you didn't know the answer to that question? Well, in the study. I said, so all this time you've been an Adventist, sitting in church every Sabbath, listening to these same things, thinking you knew what you didn't know until you found out in the Bible study you didn't know it. Oh, I guess, I guess so. I said, maybe, have you ever thought that maybe God gave you the Bible study with people who ask you questions you didn't know the answer to so you could learn the answers? Oh, well, I didn't think of it that way. Well, a lot of people don't think of it that way, but I'm going to tell you that there are a lot of things we take for granted because we're never challenged on them. There's nothing wrong with getting challenged on things. You're going to have people ask you in studies questions you don't know the answer to. Praise the Lord. You get to look it up. You get to know it. You can say, praise the Lord. I finally get to learn this thing and really own it. But it, what, that's not what you're going to tell them. You're going to tell them, that's a really good question. I'm so glad you asked. It may not be a question you have a study come up. You're going to say, I'm so glad you asked. You know what? I'm going to have to look into that. And when I come back next week, we'll talk about it. Let me look into that a little bit. You're going to have things at times that you're going to have to look things up and come up with the answers because you don't know the answers. There's no shame in that. The worst thing you can ever do is pretend you know the answer. It will get you. Sooner or later, I've had people try to pretend that they know the answer and they will try to walk through it until... There's just no way around looking really stupid. You think you're going to look, some people think they're going to look stupid by saying, I don't know the answer. There's nothing, nothing to be, a five-year-old can ask you a question you don't know the answer to. There's nothing wrong with saying, you know, I don't know the answer to that. I'll get back with you on that, okay? You can do that, right? Okay, hold on just a minute, Laura. Um, 
Is it a good and idea, if you, even if you know the answer, but to wait? Because I wouldn't know where to find the Bible. Oh, yeah. To wait and then come back with Bible text. Don't give them an answer. If you Let's say you knew an answer. They ask about predestination. You know the answer to it. But now's not the time. It's going to derail you from the point. It's going to confuse the lesson. And I'm telling you that because I've done it before. <laughs> I've been a pastor. I mean, even in a class session like this, it, sometimes if you guys ask a question, you may have noticed it. Somebody asked it, then we're like, oh, wait, where were we? And it can take us far enough away that we're like, oh, wait a minute. So you, in the study, you want to stay on task. So if they ask another a question, even if you know the answer to it, you know it's not the time for that. We're going to come, when we talk about salvation, we'll talk about predestination a little bit there if they have a question on that. So just defer it and say, that's a, 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 an interesting question. I'm so glad you asked. Any, any, you don't have to ask it that way. You can say, that's a really good question. You know, we have a study coming up on that, and we'll, we'll talk about that then. Is that okay? And one of the things I will do when I do personal Bible studies with somebody is I start them out with a notebook. I say, why don't you grab a, grab a notebook or, or something where you can take notes on, and when you have questions, let's make sure you put them down in the notebook. Why don't you write that question down, and we'll get back to it. That gives them the confidence that I'm not just brushing it off. And I will do that sometimes. I forget sometimes. I say, what, what was that thing we were talking about last week? That way, because um, sometimes they feel like you're brushing them off, and sometimes you'll forget, and then they'll feel like, wow, you asked that question. They never answered it. So I'll encourage them when they ask a question. That's a really good question. Why don't you write that down? And uh, we'll try to get to that next week, or we get a lesson coming up on it or something like that, uh, depending on what you have to look at, where you think the answer would be best uh, uh, interjected, and that kind of thing. Uh, Laura. Um, how much time would you spend on that question the next week? Well, it, again, it depends. See, if I, I would typically try to defer the question to when I have a study on that topic. If I don't, um, I don't want to give a, I don't, you know, I've got, I'm there for the Bible study. I'm not going to take 25 minutes on it, uh, which I shouldn't have to do if it's not, if it's got its own topic, if it's, if it's a long enough answer, it's probably got its own topic. If not, um, you shouldn't have to take more than five minutes to answer it. If if you do, you might rethink. Uh, you know, there might be a, you know, some of these things come up in a in a clearing process when you're getting ready for baptism too. Things that weren't caught in some of the studies. Um, but people always have questions that will come up. Some of them are really important uh, questions to be answered. Some of them are the kind of stuff Wes was talking about earlier. I'm trying to remember the examples he gave that are just. Um, Sometimes they're very um, uh, trivial, kind of odd oh, Bible trivia. You know, how many times does the word such and such appear in the Bible? You know, well, I don't know. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so anyway, what I would, the way I would do it, the way I do do this personally is I ask the question, why does God give prophecy? And then I'll, we'll go into um, Isaiah 46 because God Nobody else can give prophecy. That's one of the things that makes him God. And then we go John 13, 19, or John 14, 29. And the point I like to make there, and I usually give this example of a, um, the point I like to make is that God uses prophecy. Prophecy is an evidence God gives us to rest our faith on. God doesn't ask us to just believe blindly. 
and a story that I use. And I'm only giving you this. You can use this story. You can come up with something. But a lot of times when you're preparing for your Bible study, you'll think of an example. It may be an example of something that happened to you in your life as a parent with your kids, at your workplace, some other thing, or a story you heard somewhere. Those are things that help your studies out. And as you're preparing, you'll think, you know, I've got a really good story that illustrates this, and you'll dot it in there. Okay? But a story I use is, imagine, you know, I worked for quite a while in uh, the city of Columbus, Ohio, and the surrounding area. And it was interesting. You go downtown at the end of the day. I mean, at 5 o'clock when business is shut down, you went from this bustling city where all these people are walking all over to like a ghost town. I mean, people's pieces of paper be flying across the street and nobody to be seen, right? And, uh, you know, and you got just some homeless people or vagrants or whatever else. And, and, of course, it's getting darker and cities are getting a little less safe as everybody clears out. So I'll tell people, you know, imagine you're in this city, you know, and, and, and everybody's kind of scattered. And, you know, you're, you're walking down the sidewalk by one of these skyscrapers, and you're coming up on an alleyway. And you hear in the distance sirens wailing, you know, kind of sounds like police sirens. And they sound like they're getting closer. And as you're walking to the corner of this big skyscraper and you come to this alleyway, this cross street, just as you're coming into the corner, this man comes running down the alleyway with this, you know, long overcoat on. He's got this briefcase in his hands and sweat beating on his forehead. And he's running and he almost runs you down. And he's got this briefcase and he says, take this for me. I can't explain right now. Just take it and trust me. How many of you would take the briefcase? I'm glad I don't see any hands here on that one. You, because what's happening? Well, there's the sirens, and they're getting closer, and then this man in the sweat and the briefcase, it's probably not a good situation, okay? Now, let's take a second look at the scenario, but this time, everything's the same. You're walking down the street. The city's cleared out. You know, you hear the sirens. They're closing in. You come up on the alleyway. Somebody comes out of the alleyway with the briefcase, only this time, it's somebody you know. It's your son or your daughter. It's your brother or sister or relative of some sort. And they thrust that briefcase at you, and they say, I can't explain now. Take this for me and trust me. Will you take the briefcase? Now, what do you think the first answer I get from that one is? Yeah, well, kind of. It depends on which relative. It's almost the first answer I would get. Okay? But let's just say it... Are you, and here's it, are you more likely to take the briefcase? Why? Do you know what's in the briefcase? No. You, you have any idea what's in the briefcase? No, but what do you know? The person holding the briefcase. And so, you know, sometimes people talk about Christianity and they say, well, Christians, they got this blind faith in God they can't see. This is what started this process in my mind because I had people tell, tell me that when I became a Christian. I thought, well, if blind faith is believing in a God you can't see, what's real faith? Believing in a God you can see? Well, that's not faith. That's not faith at all. And then I came up with this scenario to kind of differentiate to me. Blind faith would be taking that briefcase from the first man because you know nothing about the situation. The second situation would be true Bible faith. I don't know what's in the briefcase, but I know the one holding the briefcase. And the reality is this. God doesn't give us all the answers. He doesn't tell us what's in the briefcase. But he does tell us in the word who he is and that we can trust him. And what the Bible tells us is that prophecy, God gives prophecy so that we can know who he is, so, we can so, so to increase our trust in what he says. Okay? So why does God give prophecy? Because God can give prophecy. Why does God give prophecy? To give us evidence to rest our faith on. 
So when we see fulfilled prophecy, we don't, it doesn't tell us everything about God, but it sure tells us something about God, that God is in control of future events. And I can trust a God like that, at least to some degree. Okay? So now you may come up with any, some entirely different illustration. You may just follow what the lesson says there, but that's how you might modify a lesson. Okay? And you use your stories and illustrations. Okay? And when you give those examples, obviously, to somebody, it, it helps things to come home a little bit. Yes. When you put a, a question like, like we did here, why does God give prophecy? Yes. Did you put it in, in that lesson? If I were doing the lesson myself, and that's how I wanted to do it, I would scratch that out, and I would write it right there. In their lesson? Not in their lesson. In my lesson. And if I did in my lesson, because their lesson is going to read, I'm not going to mark up their lesson, but I'm going to tell them this. I'm going to say, on question number one, I'm going to ask that question just a little bit different. That's what I'll tell them. You're the teacher. They expect that. They don't expect it with lesson one. They will after lesson two, three, sooner or later. They'll get that you're the teacher. In the, you know, now I'm going to ask this. Now the lessons, and I may say, the lesson says, how does God demonstrate that he can be trusted? But I'm, I'm going to ask the question this way. Why does God give prophecy? And you'll see why I'm asking it that way in just a minute. Let's look at the text, Isaiah 46. And, you know, then I'm going to have them read. I'm going to ask them what it means, just like we talked about. And I want them to be clear on it as, as we move into question number two. Question number two in here transitions to Daniel. Now, the reason I went into the John is that's my point number one that I want to make. When I give this lesson, the first point that I want to make is that God gives prophecy to give us a reason to believe. I want them to see that God doesn't expect us to blindly follow him. He gives us evidence. And prophecy is a powerful evidence for that. When we see fulfilled prophecy, we can know that there's a God in charge of the events on earth. And there's a God who knows the future at that kind of thing. So I want to convey that. Now, you might not have that point in your, what you're wanting to get across. But when you're giving the study, you're thinking, what do I want to be clear when I give this study? Now, Daniel 2, and that's kind of... That's an introduction to prophecy question or point that I like to make. Point number two in the Daniel study that you will want to make that is not anywhere in the passages you're going to read is that the book of Daniel was written in the 6th century B.C. Without that point being clear, you lose most of the power of the study because it's very easy for us when we go through this and you tell them about Babylon and Medo, Persian, Greece, and Rome. What am I talking about? History. History. And history isn't nearly as fascinating as prophecy. And I told you this yesterday. That's why I like when Wes shows him the picture and says, Daniel lived right about here in this image. Sixth century BC. The book of Daniel, Daniel, the captivity, the Babylonian captivity was in 605 BC. Okay? And it has it here in the lesson. And it was shortly thereafter, we believe, that he had this experience of Daniel chapter 2, around 600 B.C. Or, or thereabouts, 600 years before Christ. When a person understands that, that point is key. If I don't bring that up somewhere in my Daniel 2 study, I lose a lot of the impact. But when they realize that, wow, 600 B.C., and I'll bring that up again as a point of emphasis when I get down toward the end of the study. You know, so far, we've looked and we've seen that the Bible predicted the rise of the kingdoms of Babylon, of Persia, of Greece, of Rome, the division of Rome into its different, ten different parts, and then the attempts to bring Rome back together through the centuries. I mean, we're, that brings us all the way through World War I, World War II, and into our day. 
all from 600 years before Christ. Oh, now it starts to make a little bit, wow, really? And we see it. We see it. We can see it in history. But we need to remember that this was written before it ever happened. Now, how would some man do that? People say a bunch of men wrote the Bible. How would a bunch of men figure that one out? What would be the chance? And sometimes I'll ask this, what would be the chance? You know, back in Bible times, that's a way of life. Nation conquered nation. Kingdom conquered kingdom. That's what you'd seen. That's history, history to you. That's how it had been. What would be the chance for somebody to say, well, yeah, we're living in, uh, let's say Babylonian would say, yeah, we've seen kingdoms rise and fall, but from my perspective, I think there's probably going to be about three more world empires after us. Then I don't think there's going to be any more. In fact, I think that fourth one from us, it's probably going to be divided up into six, let's say ten parts. I mean, honestly, what would be, and when you put that in that perspective, you're just helping them to understand that prophecy has predicted this fine, minute detail, and it has happened just like God said. Okay, that's a point I want to get across in the study. So I can read all the questions and everything else, but there's things you're going to take more time on. Like, I'm not going to give a big story illustration about Nebuchadnezzar having a dream. The fact that Nebuchadnezzar had a dream is not a huge point for me that I want to get across. They get that point. But I'm going to elaborate more when it comes to the timing of this and the nature of the fulfillment to the, to the, to the small detail, giving examples like I just gave. You know, what is the chance of, what would you think about, and engaging them in something like that because that's a key point I want them to see is this was not history, this was prophecy. And it happened just like God said, and we can see that. Yeah, um, I was thinking, um, I know you mentioned about using the John verses at the beginning yes. of the lesson. What about, was there validity to doing it at the end where you have a tie-in to the uh, New Testament? Sure. So that it, I think that's a cool connection. There's a, there's a validity. Here's the th unique thing about a Bible study is you're going to have a train of thought. And Tom had asked during the break, and I want to bring this up again. There, are, I, I, there have been times all the time when I've gone through a lesson and I get to, like, question number nine. I'm just bringing that up. I'm, question number nine is fine here, but let's just say, I get to question nine and say, okay, what did Daniel predict? And I look at the text and I'm like, the text doesn't seem to answer that at all. And it makes no sense to me. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm, first thing I'm going to ask is, is question number nine essential to making the point the study's trying to make? That there are these world empires. If it's not, guess what I'm doing? There is no nine. We're just going to jump over nine. No, in my study, I'm just going to. I'm going to. I'm just going to tell them. Now we're going to. We're going to jump over number nine right now. And they may say, "Well, I didn't understand number nine. And I'll say, honestly, I'm not sure where the author of the lesson was going anyway. But it's not important to our study. We'll go to number ten, and we'll see how. You know, they may ask. I'll just tell them. I'll tell them the same. Um, now you could ask somebody else. And somebody else may say, this is the point. And you're like, oh, I, I didn't think about that. Or you can just skip over it. Or you may say, you know what? I don't know where he's going with this text, but I know a great text for this question. Then you just change the text. And when you're studying, you tell the person. Now, uh, this, the lesson goes to Daniel 2.39, but I like to go to 1 Corinthians, whatever. And you go there. Okay, You can do that because you're the one. The thing is, the lesson, the person who put these together, John Bradshaw in this case, he had a certain train of thought, but there's nothing that says that your train of thought is going to be his train of thought. 
And so if you have a different train of thought and you say, wow, I think this would work better over here, there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a sm you can modify the lesson a little bit. You get to a certain point, and you just better just write your own lesson. I mean, you don't want to be all through the lesson and say, okay, and this one I'm not doing this here, and I'm not doing this here, and I'm not doing this here. But for slight modification, yeah. Otherwise, yeah, write your own lessons because you're going to have a different train of thought. And if it follows your train of thought better, it means you can give it better. And that's the most important thing is you want to be able to convey the study in the way that makes it clearest to the person you're studying it with. And the fact is, if you can follow your train of thought, it may be following better than the train of thought that, that is in the lesson. Sometimes it doesn't. I mean, you've got to evaluate that a little bit. Question? Um, like with uh, number nine, you've you got the dates here, the procedural project in BC. Has anybody ever challenged you on those dates to ask you to prove it to them, to show them? It, I mean, You're going to like my answer on this one. You're going to like my answer. In fact, you could probably guess my answer. Why don't you tell me who's challenged me? Tell me, I'll give you, a, uh, this is an easy one. Who do you think challenged me on, on, on that? I haven't had a lot of challenges. No? No, but, well, you're too, too specific. Seventh-day Adventists, okay? Church members always worry about how people are going to, not, not that there's anything, look, the, te the dates are solid from history. If you've, I've done the research and everything else, and, but the people who worry about it and ask about it are Adventists. I've never had a non-Adventist that I've studied with say, well, how do you know that for sure? And the dates are not that. Sometimes I'll even say, you know, there are people come up with different dates, but the general, the general idea is the same, and the dates aren't critical in Daniel chapter um, 2, other than, you know, like the, the breakup of Rome in uh, 476 A.D. Well, okay, say it's 480 A.D., 460 A.D., it's still a long time from 600 BC. I mean, that's the main point that I'm making. So there are certain studies where a time period may be more critical, but not in Daniel 2. If somebody says Babylon's a different date or whatever else, it's not a, not a, not a huge issue. But I've not had anybody bring it up except for church members who are worried that somebody might bring it up. So sometimes we over-worry things. Okay, I want to bring these points up quickly because it's time for us to be done. My second point is I want to make it clear that Daniel was written in the 6th century BC. My third point that I want to make clear in the study, and these are not necessarily in order, but the third study I want to make clear is in Daniel 2.28, it says that the dream refers to the latter days. Okay? So I just want to make that clear that the Bible says, because somebody, inevitably, inevitably somebody might tell them, if they talk to a friend or something, might say, well, I don't, Daniel, I think that happened a lot. No, the Bible says, that it refers to the latter days. This vision reaches down to the latter days. That's what the Bible says. So I want that to be clear. So I'm going to, it, it doesn't take me a long time to emphasize that one, but it's a point that I really want to be clear in this study, that the vision, the dream refers to the latter days, according to Daniel 2.28. Point number four, I have five of them. Point number four, I want them to understand, I mean, this is kind of obvious, this is the core of the study, that the four metals refer to the four successive world empires of Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome, but I especially want them to see the world empire aspect. And so when I study it, I mentioned to you the other day, and I'll emphasize this in my study, even if the lesson doesn't, I'll write it in, that in Daniel 2 and verse 36, uh, and 37, actually verse 37, he calls Nebuchadnezzar the king of kings. You remember I brought this up yesterday. And I asked, what is a king of kings? He's a king over all the other kings. What does that tell us about this empire of Nebuchadnezzar? 
it was the world ruling empire. Why is that important? Because it makes it easier for me to confirm from history. Okay? It's not some, because it doesn't say Babylon in the Bible, does it? Now, I can figure Nebuchadnezzar is the king of Babylon, but after Nebuchadnezzar, it doesn't tell me the next three kingdoms. It just says Babylon was followed by a kingdom of silver and then bronze and then iron. But when I understand that they're world-dominating empires, then it really leaves a slim margin. I mean, I can't, what world-dominating empire followed Babylon, a world-dominating empire? What followed the empire of the, you know, so in verse 37, it talks about Nebuchadnezzar as a king of kings. And then in verse 39, it says, After you shall arise another kingdom inferior to yours, then another, a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over what? All the earth. And so that helps tie it in. That's all the earth. It's another world empire. Well, that would let us know that the second empire was likely a world empire, and the fourth empire is a world empire. And so we're dealing with world empires. And I want to make that clear in the study so that they're, so it gives them confidence in the interpretation. Wow, we're dealing with world empires. Well, from Babylon, history books tell us it was Persia, and then it was Greece, and then it was Rome. And I've never had anybody argue that one either. It's just, it's, it's very plain from history. So I emphasize that point in the study, and it doesn't take a long time to do it, but I emphasize that. And then, of course, the, the last point that I have here that I really want to convey is that everything that has been foretold in Daniel 2 has happened to the letter, except for that stone cut out without hands. Everything has happened just as predicted, except for the second coming of Jesus. Now, if everything happened just like God said it would happen, what do you think the odds are that Jesus coming is soon? What do you think the odds are that Jesus coming is certain? Daniel said the dream is certain and the interpretation is sure. And I'll tell you, there's heavy conviction there when a person realizes, look, I don't know what you've heard in other places, but the Bible tells us very clearly Jesus is coming and he's coming soon. And everything God has told us up to this point has happened, just like he said. The very next thing to happen is the coming of Jesus. And he wants you to be ready. He wants me to be ready. You want to be ready when Jesus comes? He's given us his word. And, and so I make, I, sometimes I may make an appeal like that. And then I'll, and I'll, but I'll tie into that. Do you see how God has foretold the future in the Bible? The Bible has predicted what we have seen now as historical fact. Do you see that? Do you see that? Are you willing to spend some time studying the Bible so you can better be prepared for that second coming of Jesus? And that's a simple, something simple like that. And, and you, most of your people are going to be like, yeah, right there. They're going to be ready to study that together. I saw a hand up somewhere. Did I see it? Yes. I think the time of these nations uh, in China and India exist. Yes, you're asking my objection questions. One of the things I'm going to do for you is... Um, I'll touch on this a little bit uh, tomorrow morning. One of the things that I'm going to do for you is I'll give you, along with the other materials, a set of our uh, Emanuel Institute, the studies I've written. They're not as polished as this, but with the studies that have key objections, I've written answers to the main objections. But the short answer to this, you know, people ask this question, what about China? Well. This is what we know. Nebuchadnezzar conquered everybody he knew he could conquer. It, he didn't conquer China for one of two reasons. He either didn't know they were there or didn't feel threatened by them. Okay? Now, the other answer that could be given to that is prophecy always deals with God's people and the relation. And there was no relation at that point. 
uh, any prominent relation between God's people and China. But that question, you want to be careful to make sure that that question doesn't, that question does nothing to the prophecy of Daniel 2. In other words, whether China existed or not does not take away from the fact that God predicted the rise and fall of the world empires of Babylon, Media, Greece, and Rome. And I do think it's pretty conclusive that Nebuchadnezzar would have conquered China or China would have conquered Nebuchadnezzar if that was the case, but they didn't. You know, either they were unaware of each other's existence or it just wasn't a, wasn't a challenge for, you know, wasn't a concern of his. So neither viewpoint of that does anything to the prophecy of Daniel. Now another question that comes up is how do we know Daniel was written in 600 BC because some people say it was written, you know, later. And I'll cover that briefly tomorrow because we're out of time, way out of time. So it's dinner time. Are you hungry? Yeah. Anybody hungry? I'm hungry. Yes? You know what I always say when, when someone asks me that about China? I always add that these prophecies are concerning God's, God's people. people. What would happen to the church? Yes. You know, not everybody in the world, but God's Right. And that's, that's a good answer. Okay, well, thank you for your attentiveness. This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.